0: Hi, John, welcome to Buddy Design. Really Hi,
1: Deepak, good to see you.
0: Likewise, likewise. Um, John, for our viewers, if you could do a quick introduction to yourself, please.
1: Yes, I'm John Boddy, founding partner of ThinkPlace. And that's a company that I started in 2005. Since then, um, we are now operating out of six countries in 10 locations. But in every case, we're applying design, human-centered design to very complex situations that make a difference for individuals and for humanity as a whole. That's ThinkPlace.
0: Wonderful. John, um, you're interesting in many ways, but one of the things that um, I recall from our very first meeting is you have, um, you actually started off in the Australian tax department and then went over to ThinkPlace. Um, we don't often think of tax guys as uh, design thinkers. So tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: Yes, it's an interesting story, Deepa. It started... Um, we did a lot of work in the tax office. around strategy. I, I was involved in um, a function called corporate directions for the Australian Taxation Office. Through that... I was introduced uh, to some very good proponents of design. Uh, One is um, Tony Goldsby-Smith and another is Professor Richard Buchanan. And they were grappling with how you might apply design to a large system. So uh, Professor Richard Buchanan was at the time Dean of of the Design School at Carnegie Mellon University. And he was, uh, he had a theory of four orders of design and the four orders were the design of the aesthetic, uh, the design, which is really graphic or visual design, uh, design of product or function. So that's form and function. And then design of interaction, which is, um, well, it is interaction, transaction, service, like user interface, those types of designs. and But he was looking for taking design, how much you apply it to an even bigger level of recursion. And that's how we got interested in it. There was just this fortunate intersection that at that very time, tax was searching for how do we get cut through on making the taxpayers' experience easier and cheaper and more personalized. Um, that coincided with uh, meeting up with Dick Buchanan and, and Tony Goldsby smith and subsequently many other thought leaders in this space globally. So that was really our journey, and um, it just took off. And tax did not do this to be nice and kind. Tax did it because it costs a fraction the cost to bring in a dollar of revenue if people willingly comply. It's extremely expensive to collect dollars forcibly, but you need to still be able to do that. There needs to be a strong enforcement capability, but you want the bulk of your dollars to just fly in the door because that is the most cost-effective way. So it's not because we're really kind in Australia, it's because it's the most cost-effective way to run a revenue system.
0: Absolutely, that's fascinating. And you also have your masters in chaos and complexity. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: that? Well, I got interested in chaos and complexity theory because complex systems is really the fabric or the material science for a fourth order designer. Mm-hmm. So, when you're designing a health intervention, a nutrition intervention, a maternal health intervention, uh, any of the sorts of projects that we do, then you're designing within a complex system. And if, if you don't grapple with the complexity, if you try and eliminate it or pretend it's not there, there's a high probability your design will not work in practice. So it's really, for me, understanding the fabric or the, the materials with which we're working when we're designing in a complex system.
0: Absolutely, I guess the ultimate goal is to have a simple solution, but you do that by understanding the complex system behind it. John, some of the work that we're doing and we're evangelizing also dovetails with your thinking. Um, So at Pensar, we'd like to say that we want to move as researchers, we want to move from a place of unconscious bias, Mm -hmm. to conscious understanding. Um, and so what are some of the uh, tips and tricks that you have that you, know, you can at least start becoming aware of those biases?
1: I think firstly, knowing they're there is, is really useful. Um, and I, I have seen a list of you know, obviously confirmation bias and those sort of things are quite well known now, but there's about 10 of these types of biases that we have. Um, so, firstly, knowing that we're all prone, to, that we're all prone to bias, and knowing that um, if I was to come to India and observe something, I would have a whole other set of biases that that would come to bear compared with you deeper looking at the same community, and some of that could be a positive and some of that could be a negative. So I might observe something through um, untrained eyes, which might allow me to see something that you just couldn't see because you would take it for granted. But equally, I might view something more as a tourist than as a person inside the system. So that would be a weakness. But I think really knowing you know, where your biases potentially are coming from. And and so if you think about a team, thinking about the diversity of the team that you put on the research, that's one way of um, helping, you know, so gender diversity, race, racial diversity, age diversity, experience diversity. um, Some of that helps to overcome bias I think um, I'll just give you a one a third area because I think um, there's something to, there's there's a preparedness for humility. there's a preparedness to listen. There's a preparedness to say that um, the most senior voice in the room is not necessarily the one with the right answer. Um, and so there's a humility from those senior voices to say, the the voice of the downtrodden, the voice of the vulnerable, the voice of the least powerful is as equally important to provide insight as those in power. So there's some of the things. So there's a mindset, there's a bias awareness, and then there's some practical um, approaches. Actually, I will give you a fourth one, which is I think... In the design field, it can be, we, we can often tend to overemphasize qualitative research over quantitative. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to really, that, that dichotomy is too simplistic. So we need to use mixed methods yeah. of understanding and be comfortable with all forms and not create sort of po- polarities of, um, of research.
0: Oh, it's fabulous. Um, the more I speak with you, John, I realize that we might be miles apart, but have the same mindset and approach. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these fabulous points. But I want to also go back to the first thing you said, which I think is really, really important. And it's that awareness about biases itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, behavioral economics always talks about how you it's not about judging people for what they're doing but it's to have that curiosity to understand how they're doing what they are and I want to give you a quick example of some of the work we did and would love to hear some examples from you as well John. Mm -hmm. Um, So recently we worked with uh, a large Indian conglomerate and they were looking to improve their safety metrics on their factory floors. Mm -hmm. Um, You know workers knew that um, they had a choice to make more safe choices. And managers knew that the faster they fixed conditions um, that were unsafe, that you know it would be a better place for everyone.
1: And yes.
0: even though cognitively people understood that, in practice, a few people were making not such great choices. Mm-hmm. So rather than judge them and throw you know training at them, would mm-hmm. Together with the company was to understand why they do what they do, Mm -hmm. and once we change that mindset of you know we're not going to judge or give solutions, but we're going to first try to understand why they do what they do. That just shifted um, the whole perspective of the Mm -hmm. team, and we came up with solutions that we wouldn't have otherwise uh, come you know come to. I was wondering if you had some examples that you could share.
1: It's a few years back now, but we, we ran a fairly um, significant project within the government district that I am in, um, which was called Listening to Families. And what we were trying to understand was why, why are the services that are provided to the more vulnerable families in the community, in the the region that I live. Why are they not really doing anything to help those families in a sustainable way? And so what we did, we took a fairly, um, probably it it was certainly a novel approach at the time. And this project is a, a few years old now. But we took a novel approach at the time, which was we're just not going to rush to a solution. So if you think of the the typical diamond in a um, design process, I think a lot of times people try and close out the diamond way too early. (laughs) And this client was a really interesting client in that they had a very high propensity to keep that diamond open for quite a long time. And you don't always find a client that's prepared to do that. But I think they knew that if we had a problem that was decades old and experienced all around the world, we weren't going to solve it in an eight-week project. So um, this was, you know, it was primarily it was it was deliberately called listening to families. It wasn't called finding answers for families. It was just called listening. And I think it just became very obvious that um, the families that are interacting heavily with, say, the health system are often the same families that are interacting heavily with the education system and the criminal justice system and law enforcement systems. And pretty well any system that the government's running these people, the welfare system and so on, these people are heavy users. And in fact, in in the United Kingdom, I think these people were called the sort of homeless millionaires because a million dollars was spent on them of government services, but they were still homeless and they were still marginalised from society. Um, So... This project that we ran was really one of just genuinely listening and genuinely understanding all stakeholders in the system, so obviously the families and what had caused their situation, but also the trusted people in the families' networks, the the carers or providers, and then the government officials and the government service deliverers. And judgment was suspended. And it was really around, let's see if we can, let's see if ideas percolate, let's not force a strategy, let's not force solutions, let's see what identifies itself. And um, some quite powerful insights did come out of that, which were not mind-blowingly complicated, but um, yeah, essentially there was significant power imbalances in the system. Um, People, what we did find, I I remember one of the important findings was a a lot of people in society are on a knife edge and could plummet into that world quite quickly. Um, So they're just staying in the mainstream economy. But I I recall a story of a chef who, um, she cut her finger quite badly at work with her chef's knife and that meant she couldn't work and she didn't have any forms of insurance against that eventuality because that's costly. Chefs are generally not permanently employed. They're, they're high casual workforce in the hospitality industry. And so she suddenly tipped from being a normal sort of person, you know, probably struggling but not really um, challenge to being homeless and um, living in a car and yeah you know, all the things that go with that, health issues that go with that, issues with her children that go with that. So um, that was that was probably an example of just hold watch, look, observe, speak to all dimensions of the system and see what emerges.
0: Absolutely. That's fabulous. And I love the stories. You know, you um, do research and then when you have these amazing stories to tell, you know that, you know, you've you've started to understand the complexity Mm. around this. John, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, You've done a lot of work given your, um, you know, your history with the taxation department and the government. I know um, that you and you work with um, large companies, but also with the government. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about um, what that triad of, you know, a um, a company like yours, large company and government can sort of come and do together that you individually wouldn't be able to.
1: Mm, Definitely. So, When we work with a client, um, uh, I I borrowed this theory and then probably built on it. But when we're co-designing, we talk about four voices of design. So for for millennia, really, I think going back to the Greeks, they talked about three voices of design. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably talk about, I've added a fourth voice. And and so when we're doing a project, say, with government, which might be about a big community system, um, a health system or an employment system or education, we're looking for, firstly, the voices of intent. So who has a vision for some sort of preferred future state that warrants doing anything to change the state. So who's got dissatisfaction, discontent with the way things are and thinks things could be different and could be better. So so that is certainly the first voice. The, The way that governments have traditionally designed is they would then assemble around that problem state, some experts so let's take for example um, let's take for example something to do in the climate space then they might assemble around them people who climate scientists who understand the science of the problem uh, they might bring together, let's say it's something to do with energy and its relationship to climate. They might bring people who run energy companies together, um, but their own policy experts and, and so on. So you end up with this sort of toing and pro between experts and the voice of intent. And that's probably the way that a lot of government change has happened over the decades and yeah, throw in other experts, legal experts, IT experts, etc but it's a debate, almost a wrestling match between the different experts trying to meet um, what the voice of intent is seeking. The, so imagine them on a vertical axis, voice of intent at the top and voice of expertise at the bottom of that axis. Um, I think what design brings is a a horizontal axis. And on that left-hand side of that horizontal axis, we have the voice of experience. And the voice of experience is really, I I think of them and the reason I differentiate them from the experts is they're the people who are gonna live with the health system or the energy system or the education system. On a day by day basis, they're not actually they're novice users. They're not thinking about it. They just like um, you and me might use the school system for for kids to be educated, or you know we might we might use the energy system because we turn the power, you know turn the power on and turn the lights on. Uh, but we're not thinking about where did that electricity come from every moment of the day and. will we have enough tomorrow and how much greenhouse gas was generated because the light's on above me here. So that's the voice of experience. Um, So that's the normal user, the normal citizen going about their day-to-day life, but they're affected by the system. Mm -hmm. The fourth voice, which is on the right-hand side of the horizontal axis, is the voice of design. Now... I, I my view is the voice of design is there to make it deliberate how those other voices come together. Mm-hmm. So the sorts of things you've been talking about there, Dee, but the sorts of things like checking that your facts, opinions, and guesses are overt, checking your biases are clear, to checking that you've got the diversity of views in your in your um, in your group, thinking through what's our methodology, what's our blended methodologies? What's it. so how are we going to re-perceive the system? What are the questions we need to ask? What's the way forward through this? Is really the voice of design. And without that voice, things will happen, but often more in a in a more antagonistic and less constructive and less uh, bias aware way. And often in a policy environment, because of that, the policy will fail. And government policies fail more often than they succeed by a large margin. Um, So it's not a foregone conclusion that uh, the policy will succeed. In most cases, it will fail for a range of reasons. Um, So back to your, you know, back to your question, I think when we're working in these government contexts, that's probably step one, lesson one. We've got to get the right voices involved in the design and um, work convincing our government clients that all voices need to be represented. Sometimes an expert will approach us and we'll say, well, we can't work till we've got a voice of intent because the voice of intent is going to give the sort of permission, mobilise the resource, give the energy to the direction, overcome uh, obstacles. Something that, uh, just one more reflection on it, I was speaking with a very senior government official in Singapore where we have a studio and talking about this and um, talking about certainly when organisations start getting interested in design, they often flip completely from the vertical and go horizontal. So it's all about the user and the user experience and the designer and misses the government's policy intent and the experts. And so then you end up with, um, and, and you've probably seen this, you know, when people are really early on in the field of design in a complex system, they get very excited about the user experience, right. but forget the importance of, well, hang on, there's quite quite rigid privacy legislation and there's technological challenges around um, data privacy and there's all these sorts of uh, issues. And there's a government policy direction So you've got to really grapple with all of that, not just get intoxicated by the excitement of the user experience. So it's the balance that the voice of design really has to bring in the right proportions. Mm.
0: And what do you see as far as um, trends are concerned or what patterns are emerging with complexity itself, John?
1: I studied my master's in complexity almost 20 years ago and people thought I was some sort of outsider or strange person, uh, especially when I said chaos theory as well, you know, that just became very intriguing. Um, it seems to be mainstreaming now and systems thinking's always been a bit on the outer In my experience, because it's a hard thing to grapple with, but it does seem to be moving more into the mainstream. So I think people are now more comfortable with the fact that the systems we're working with um, are not deterministic. They're not like machines where you can say, well, this is happening. And in five years time, it's going to look exactly like this. And um, Yes, yeah, so people are just not, people are now more comfortable with this notion of ambiguity and notion that um, there could be emergent properties of the system that we never imagined. Mm-hmm. They're more familiar, I think, with notions of feedback that, um, you know, if I do something, you'll respond and someone else will respond in another way. And when you put all that together at a societal level, it just creates all this um, unpredictability. I, I find people are more comfortable with, um, with those sorts of notions and there's more people studying how systems behave. So I think they're probably the trends. Um, it's just greater awareness, greater greater appreciation that it's worth understanding how complex systems operate.
0: That's right, and I guess you were talking about the um, homeless millionaires and how they're mm. consuming all of these different systems, right? The healthcare, the law and order—you mentioned in um, you know, multiple government, uh, you know, organizations—and you can't look at even any of those one units in and itself because the person that's consuming mm. it is actually interacting with multiple systems. So it just takes that complexity and systems thinking to a whole other level when you look at yeah
1: I think we often um, you know we'll often think yeah I know we I do it here if you're working with the tax office then they refer to people as taxpayers and if you're well well working with a social welfare agency they talk about social welfare recipients or customers of that and then the bank has a customer and the you know the the um, supermarket has a customer Um. And so everybody sort of names their person in their own language. But it's actually all what, you know, it's the one individual.
0: Similarly, in large companies um, that have multiple products, you tend to sort of have literally different personas for each product. Mm, yet, yeah. you know, the, your end customer might be a small business owner. Um, yes find many different ways, which is honestly doesn't make sense. But, you know, that unnecessarily at that level of complexity. Um, Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. This has been fabulous. I learned so much about um, how you think about the various voices, how you bring in diversity with that, um, you know, ability to then voice everyone to voice their opinion that
1: mm-hmm.
0: with inclusion it was such a pleasure I really yeah
1: thank you Deepa well I always enjoy our conversations and as you say uh, your context is very different from mine but the worldview, I think is very much the same um, and the way we think about the world and think about design so um I learned as much as you learned, Deeper. So a great conversation. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Really appreciate your time, John.